Welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Wednesday, May 1st, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Gillibrand's new Democracy Dollars plan, Biden's big bounce in the polls, what the Biden bounce means for Sanders, a senior surge accompanied the youth voting surge last year, what the candidates think about vaccination, and Buttigieg releases his tax returns. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Early this morning, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand released her first major policy plan, dubbed the Clean Elections Plan. And it's an effort to pump up the grassroots influence of each American by giving them vouchers to donate money to political campaigns. In an interview with NBC News, Gillibrand described the plan as a way to clean up elections that are currently dominated by big money interests. And by the way, she calls the donation vouchers democracy dollars. Reading from NBC News here, quote, Under Gillibrand's plan, every eligible voter could register for vouchers to donate up to $100 in a primary election and $100 in a general election each cycle, either all at once or in $10 increments to one or more candidates over time. Each participant would get a separate $200 pool for House, Senate, and presidential contests for a total maximum donation of $600 for those federal offices. There would be strings attached for both donors and candidates. The money could go only to elections in the donor's state, although they could be used for House candidates outside the voters' district. End quote. Okay, so that's the carrot. Letting individuals opt in to get vouchers so they can make an impact in races that influence them the most. So what's the stick? Well, this is pretty interesting. Again, from NBC News, quote, Politicians would face much tighter limits on donations. To be eligible to receive democracy dollars, a candidate would have to voluntarily agree to forego any contributions larger than $200 per donor. That's a big drop from the current maximum of $2,800 per primary cycle and $2,800 for the general election. Gillibrand predicted candidates would opt into the voucher system because the potential of how much you could raise in this system is exponentially higher, end quote. Gillibrand said that this system would incentivize candidates to campaign at the local level to visit communities regardless of income level, many of which are currently ignored because, let's face it, folks with less money are less likely to give much of that money to any political candidate. But if they automatically get free vouchers and the choice is just where to put that money, well, that is a real difference. And this goes way beyond that thing on your taxes where you check a box to give three bucks to a federal election fund. Putting the amounts in context, NBC News reported that only half of 1% of Americans currently contribute more than $200 to political campaigns in any given election. Let me say that again. Half of 1% of Americans give more than $200. So this plan would clearly disrupt the current political donation system. Candidates would have to make a tough call on sticking with the old way or adapting to this new system. And for 99.5% of voters, the choice seems pretty simple. Okay, so how does Gillibrand plan to pay for this? Well, the campaign does not put a number on what this program might cost. And if it's rolled out to every American, well, okay, calculator time, let me get this out. If we, if we assume about 120 million voters and maybe half of them opt in, so that's 60 million, and assume they all get the full 600 bucks, Okay, that's $36 billion per election cycle. And that's just assuming half of the voters sign up. So, calculators down. In her Medium post announcing the details, this is what Gillibrand wrote about paying for it. Quote, 
I would eliminate the loophole that makes taxpayers subsidize excessively high CEO compensation. CEOs making 25 times the median salary of their employees, or more than $1 million, whichever is less. That change would raise over $60 billion in 10 years. End quote. Well, that might add up. I calculated $36 billion per cycle, and Gillibrand says this could raise $60 billion per 10 years. So, maybe it works. But it really does depend on how many people opt in, and for how much, and so on. But if the campaign math and my loosey-goosey calculator stuff are both right, it is probably doable. So where did this idea come from? Well, Gillibrand's plan is based in part on a program that was implemented in Seattle in 2017 for local elections. In that system, $25 vouchers are distributed in much the same way that Gillibrand proposes, but they're limited to use in local elections. So how did that work out? Reading from NBC News, quote, Six candidates opted into the voucher system, one of whom won a city council seat, but donor participation in the program was still relatively low at 3.3% of eligible voters, even though the city mailed vouchers to their homes, end quote. Now, there's more color on that Seattle plan in the Medium story. That plan did bring in a bunch of new donors, despite the relatively low percentage I just listed. And by the way, Gillibrand's plan might also find support among other candidates. For instance, Joe Biden has been trying to get federal elections to be publicly financed since the 70s. And there's also a bill in Congress backed by Democrats that would match small donations with a multiplier of public funds. However, that program is designed to be a small test run, and the vouchers will be limited to $25. So Gillibrand's plan is a big, complicated vision. And as always, there are links in the show notes to the proposal itself and some news coverage about it. After Joe Biden officially entered the race, his polling numbers went up. And remember, before he announced, he was already leading the pack. In a piece for 538, Nate Silver looks into recent polling, showing what he calls the Biden bounce, and asks, does it mean anything? Well, let's check a few numbers first to quantify the bounce itself. Silver looks at four polls, including the CNN poll I talked about quite a bit yesterday. In that one, Biden was at 39%, which is up 11 points since their previous poll. In a Quinnipiac University poll, he's at 38%, up 9 since last time. And then there's a morning consult poll where Biden is at 36%, up 6 from last time. And finally, Harris X, where he's at only 33%, up 4 points from last time. Let me read a few paragraphs from Silver's analysis. Quote, On average, between the four national polls, Biden has gained 8 percentage points. Where did he take that support from? It came from all over the place. Sanders is down 4 points on average as is Beto O'Rourke. Kamala Harris is down two points. Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar are each down one point. But some other Democrats have also gained ground. Warren is up three points on average in the new national polls. So is Buttigieg, although that's a little misleading since the previous Harris X, Quinnipiac, and CNN polls were conducted before his surge had really kicked in. In the poll that offers the most recent basis for comparison, Morning Consult, Buttigieg is actually down one point from last week's edition. Biden's support is driven by older Democrats and by non-white Democrats, two groups that aren't always well-represented on social media or in other forums that sometimes dictate the conventional wisdom about the candidates. End quote. Now, by the way, I did trim out a huge pile of numbers at the end of that last quote because they were too much to say or to hear. Go read the link in the show notes if you want to see the details on the specific numbers per poll per candidate. The big question, though, 
is whether the support for Biden will hold or whether it will fade after the media moves on. And Silver says he thinks this bounce will fade, just like it did for Sanders, Harris, and O'Rourke after they announced. The other key message from Silver's analysis is that Warren is polling well, and she seems to be unhurt by Biden's bounce. In fact, she gained points. And her base does not seem to overlap that much with Biden's. In other words, there is a possible scenario where it comes down to Biden versus Warren in the primaries. Read Silver's analysis, link in the show notes, for a fascinating projection of what might happen. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. In a piece for New York Magazine, Ed Kilgore explores what Biden's bounce means for Bernie Sanders. I'm not going to rehash all the numbers I just covered in the last piece. The point is, Biden is up, many other candidates are down, and that includes Sanders. Reading from New York Magazine, quote, Aside from Harris and O'Rourke, the candidate who should be most alarmed by these and other findings is Bernie Sanders. Biden and Sanders were often viewed as co-frontrunners. Now, Biden's opening up a substantial lead on him in national polls. Even worse, a new Boston Globe slash Suffolk poll of New Hampshire shows Biden leading Sanders there 20 to 12, with Mayor Pete tied with Bernie in second place. New Hampshire was generally considered to be Sanders' country, in no small part because he trounced Hillary Clinton there by a 60-38 to 38 margin in 2016. It is as close to a must-win state for Sanders as you could identify. End quote. Kilgore goes on to explain that in earlier polling, Biden was often cited by likely Sanders voters as their second choice. And that's potentially dangerous for Sanders, not just because Biden is now in the race and could flip over to being their first choice, but also because there are so many other candidates who could chip away at his support as well. Sanders has been making it super clear that he and Biden have major differences when it comes to policy. Reading from a CNN report cited by Kilgore here, quote, Senator Bernie Sanders compared his record with Joe Biden's on trade and foreign policy on Monday, attempting to draw sharp contrasts between himself and the former vice president as the two lead the Democratic presidential pack. I think when people take a look at my record versus Vice President Biden's record, I helped lead the fight against the North American Free Trade Agreement. He voted for NAFTA, Sanders said on Anderson Cooper 360. I helped lead the fight against permanent normal trade relations with China. He voted for it. I strongly opposed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He supported it. I voted against the war in Iraq. He voted for it. End quote. 
Now, beyond those clear policy differences, there's also a silver lining for Sanders in terms of that second choice thing I mentioned earlier. When the morning consult poll asked voters who support Biden and Warren as their first choice to pick a second choice, both Biden and Warren voters chose Sanders. So there is clearly some kind of overlap among the voters at that top tier and room for voters to be comfortable with a second choice if that's how the primaries turn out. And now for the senior surge. In a Bloomberg article, Joshua Green gets into how older voters are turning out in droves, giving us the flip side of a story on a massive spike in youth voter turnout that I covered back on Wednesday, April 24th. In Green's story, he looks into a similar surge in turnout among older voters and what that might mean. Reading from the Bloomberg story, quote, Although it gets much less attention than the jump in youth turnout, 2018 saw an historic senior surge that helped Democrats win 40 House seats. And that, were it to continue, could give Biden an unexpected boost in the presidential primary. The senior surge accompanied a swing towards Democrats among older voters, says Tom Bonnier, CEO of Target Smart, a Democratic political data and data services firm. While the Democratic primary electorate generally skews older than the general electorate, it appears seniors are poised to play an even more influential role in the 2020 primaries. Biden, perhaps not surprisingly, is most popular with older voters. End quote. Now, where the demographics are on full display is in the charts. Target Smart provided a series of charts breaking down the age of voters in the elections for 2014, 2016, and 2018. And within each year, they break down the share of the general election vote in the U.S. by age, meaning simply how many people within a given age range voted as a percentage of the total number of voters. And while, yeah, the story about increasing young voter turnout is true, it might not matter much because there are so many older voters still living and still voting in extremely large numbers. As an example, in the 2018 election, voters aged 50 and older accounted for a total of more than 60% of the overall votes cast. 60%! That is an enormous number because, well, look, I don't want to do your math for you, but I'm gonna. That means everybody else, everybody under age 50 is casting about 40% of the vote. So that means either younger voter turnout has to surge way more. And by the way, it does have room to do that in theory, or the older voters effectively control the election. Now, one more bit from the Bloomberg piece, quote, Over the long term, the Democratic Party is becoming younger and more diverse. But last fall, the graying of the electorate was one key to the Democrats' success. If it keeps up, Biden could have more staying power atop the presidential primary field than most analysts are currently expecting. End quote. So check that link in the show notes for the Bloomberg piece and do not count out the over 50 crowd just yet. In a BuzzFeed News article, Claudia Kerner reached out to the field of primary candidates to ask about their stances on vaccination. Now, this comes in the context of a series of measles infections across the country, including major outbreaks in New York and Michigan and Washington State, plus minor ones in many, many other communities. And that's just this year so far. We are clearly on pace to break decades-old measles records in 2019. So, as an issue, vaccination against diseases, like measles, is pretty dangerous political territory. On all sides of the issue, people have super strongly held beliefs, sometimes even religious beliefs. 
So, if you're a politician trying to take a side, you will, by definition, alienate some chunk of possible voters. This is an issue where even trying to stay in the middle of the road might get a bunch of voters mad at you. And by the way, that's what seems to have happened in response to this BuzzFeed News story to one candidate. More on that in a moment. Okay, so BuzzFeed News asked the campaigns these three specific questions. Quote, 1. What do you believe about vaccines? 2. Do you believe vaccines are a possible cause of autism? And three, do you support efforts to end religious and personal belief exemptions, leaving only medical exemptions? End quote. All right, so what about the answers? Well, I'm not going to run down the like 20 plus list and read off every answer because that would be boring. And also the answers are all over the place. So it's best probably to pick the candidate you want to look at specifically to see what they have or have not said. And frankly, most candidates chose to answer part of the question, and some were way more direct than others. In summary, BuzzFeed News says that, quote, Nine Democrats provided answers to BuzzFeed News describing vaccines as necessary, but taking different approaches to exemptions. Others have supported vaccines, but have not publicly spoken about who should be able to refuse immunity, a topic that's prompted heated debate and protests in some communities as low vaccination rates have put more people at risk of infection, end quote. And here's where that middle-of-the-road explanation seemed to kind of blow up for one candidate. There was a brief Twitter explosion yesterday when Pete Buttigieg's response to this article was taken up as potentially anti-vaccination. Now, I would suggest reading the article for his full comments. But also, early this morning, the campaign followed up, simplifying what had previously been a rather complex set of statements. Quote, Pete believes vaccines are safe and effective and are necessary to maintaining public health, the spokesperson said. There is no evidence that vaccines are unsafe, and he believes children should be immunized to protect their health. He is aware that in most states the law provides for some kind of exemptions. He believes only medical exemptions should be allowed. End quote. Okay, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that I love tax returns, specifically reading other people's tax returns to see all about their money. And yesterday afternoon, the Buttigieg campaign released 10 years of his returns. And as I have done with so many other candidates, it is time to tell you all about Buttigieg's finances. So the big flashing headline here is that Buttigieg has not made much money compared to the other candidates. And indeed, of the tax returns that I have seen so far for candidates in this race, he makes the least amount of money overall. Quoting a CNN summary here, and by the way, I'm going to round a bunch of these numbers so they're easier to hear and make sense of. Okay, quote, Buttigieg and his husband Chaston, a teacher, had an adjusted gross income of $153,000 last year and paid an effective tax rate of 13%. Before their 2018 marriage, Buttigieg filed as a single taxpayer. His adjusted gross income in 2017 was $134,000. He earned $109,000 as the mayor of South Bend and earned about $25,000 as an advance to write his book, Shortest Way Home, after expenses. End quote. Okay, one big note here. Buttigieg has not given much money to charity over the years. This was a huge knock against O'Rourke when he released his taxes, and it should apply equally here. It has not made headlines for whatever reason, but that picture is pretty similar in terms of charitable giving. Not much. All right, now digging in, there are some really interesting financial years for Buttigieg. For instance, in 2014, he brought in $46,000. That year, he took an unpaid leave of absence as mayor to deploy to Afghanistan. But that's not all. 
Back in 2011, Buttigieg had an income of just $7,115. That was the year that he ran for mayor, and I guess he's glad he did that because the following year his income was a little over 120 k And there's also the year 2010 when he left his day job to run for state treasurer in Indiana, and he lost that race. His total income that year was just under $34,000. So you've got to ask yourself, how did he survive these lean years in 2010 and 2011 during political campaigns? Well, his 2009 return gives us a hint. Back then, he made almost $150,000 as a consultant at McKinsey. And that year, he sold some stock from a USAA brokerage fund. So we can presume that he built up some savings during his early career. But aside from that, just to compare... He had roughly the same income in 2009, single, as a consultant, as he did in 2018, married, with two incomes. And both of those numbers are lower than the rest of the field. Now look, money isn't everything, not by a long shot, but this set of financials puts Buttigieg closer to kind of like normal person money than any other candidate I've seen. Part of that, to be super clear is the fact that he wasn't married until recently, so his tax returns show only one person's income. But the other part of it is that the jobs he's taken during the years reported have mostly been a combo of small-town mayor, low-money book author, and military service. And that's it for another episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter at Chris Higgins. And a quick follow-up on yesterday's Unity Pledge. Beto O'Rourke has now signed it, but still no word yet on that pledge from Joe Biden. Also, I admit I did not see a ton of primary-related news in the House Medicare for All hearings yesterday. So I am sure y'all are really sad not to hear about all that. But when it happens, I will keep you posted. All right, I'll talk to y'all tomorrow. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.